Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to a very special edition of On the Tape. We are joined by uh, the Compound Bros. As we, boop, is that what we call here? So we got Josh Brown. He is TRB, uh, the reform broker, and uh, Michael Batnick, his partner in crime. Um, you guys. We don't, we don't do crimes. You don't do crimes. Not anymore. But, but, you know, Danny's out this week. He wishes he could have been here. Parts unknown. Shout Demo. But He's got, in Italy, actually. Well, we got Guy Christopher Adami, who came in. Guy has not been in New York City Prior to noon, this I want to say for me in, the in city. five years. Did you get called in for this? Yeah. For you guys. Yes. No, I didn't get called are in. You on, I mean, are, you one, on, are you on fast? Tonight. Yeah. Uh, CNBC's right. Fast Money, 5 so o'clock Eastern time. Partly for us. Partly for us. Partly for us. No, fast. no, but he does, he does afternoons in the city. He doesn't do mornings in the city, yeah. right? So it's here tough we to get in here. We had these guys. You guys were on uh, on March 30th, um, and and we you, you had a little setup. I was on your pod on March 3rd, and the name of that 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 pod was Dan Nathan Predicts Recession. Yeah, okay. that, that, that was March 3rd. How to okay. go? How to go though? How did, all right, but then you guys were with us on March 30th, and I think we called it um, the pod. The Compound Bros says stocks will go higher in the future. Stocks go higher in the future. And he thank tried you. to. Dunk. And you guys nailed thank it. You. Thank you for doing that. All right, so thank you for coming back because our, our <laughs> listeners needed to hear more optimism here. So how are you? Guys? I'm getting cautious, but short term, short term cautious. Okay, so what, what is short? Let's play the game. What's short term? Like through the fall? Yeah. I don't like. I don't like what I saw in the last five trade. This is just me. Not. I'm not speaking for Michael. He's fu- no, he's fucking taking my talking points. <laughs> I don't like what I saw in the last five days. The quality of stocks on the leaderboard each day. It is the junkiest yeah. of the junk, and that's fine. It's not illegal, but when that starts. It's not like the beginning of something. Can I that's, put some meat on Josh's big bones? Yeah. Would you mind? He has big bones. Um, this is from the Daily Chart Book, who is a great follow on Twitter. It's awesome right, charts. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, da- at Daily Chart Book. On X. Right this now. is from Goldman. On Fuck that. Uh, f- quote, fundamental long chart managers have experienced nine consecutive days of negative alpha, the longest period since January 2017. So to Josh's point, what's going up versus what's going down, there's a lot of squeezes, there's a lot of delevering, short covering, whatever you want to call it, and that doesn't happen at the beginning of a move. So when we say, or when I say, I'm short-term cautious, I'm not suggesting that like regular people do anything. I'm just, I'm just. You, you know I what just, this? My, you know what this tape reminds me of the most? You know that week right after Christmas, leading into New Year's, 
the types of stocks that start yeah. rallying for no re- like China shit and like earnings list companies, stocks that have been down 80% that year and the tax law selling ends, like that that's what the tape looks like to me. Well, people over the last pushing few things days. around, they're just trying to like move things that they know can make some money in short term. Yeah. And you know what you know what it feels like to me actually? It feels like Q3 2021. And so when I think about this in the lead up to when the Fed did their kind of about face on rates, you know, we had a last gasp of meme, meme stocks, of crypto, of SPACs, of unprofitable tech, of recent IPOs, that sort of thing. So I, I kind of feel we I think we feel what you're throwing down. I, I will say this, you know, we had a great conversation with you guys. Um, you know, guys. Guy and I were, you know, this was again March 30th. We had just gotten through this regional banking thing, and not really gotten through it. But I mean, I, I think the dust, the dust had kind of settled a little bit because SVB was kind of like, you know, uh, room fenced or whatever you want to call it, ring fenced. Um, you know, for us, I, I think I finished that by saying, listen, if you want to invest in the market right here, and we were talking a little bit about some of this AI stuff, then dollar cost, dollar cost average in the QQQ. All quarter long. Like that, that's what like the last thing I said. That's kind of the trade. And that has been the thing that worked, but it has been uncorrected in four months now. Like, 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 does that make you guys, even if that's the highest quality stuff, if you believe so, in yeah. that stuff? So here's here's a caveat and an asterisk. The 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 caveat is that when I say I'm short-term cautious, again, I'm not doing anything with it, but that wouldn't I'm not calling for anything other than, you know, maybe a four, five, six, seven, a very normal, very normal, very healthy sort of pullback. And then the aster or the asterisk is that. Momentum momentum is very strong. And there was an outside reversal day on Thursday that did not come to fruition. Stocks were up 1% the next day, right? So when the tape is strong, like, you got to respect it. That Thursday was an interesting day, that outside reversal day. Now, the next day, I think part of it was that PCE came in, yes. whatever you want to use term. But also a lot had to do with the Bank of Japan wasn't as draconian as I think the market feared. But that didn't go away. That maybe just got pushed off by a couple of weeks. And I don't want to get all that granular, but – that's out there. The, you know, this dollar-yen, the carry trade, I mean, a 40-year unwind might be taking place right before our very eyes. Do you, is that interesting at all? Well, it's interesting, and and it's not to be dismissed lightly like, oh, nothing matters. Um, a lot of people over the years have misconstrued my commentary because I speak hyperbolically and I overgeneralize and I do things uh, theatrically to make a point. So a lot of people look at that and say – uh, oh, he doesn't care, you know, like like just buy and hold, ignore everything. Okay, we'll see how that goes. First of all, it went pretty fucking well. But second of all, it's not really how I feel. I think what's important for the context of this conversation is two things. The first is, even if I felt a certain way about the unwind of a currency pair or a commodity price spike or a geopolitical event, the way that we've built the firm is rules-based. We have a tactical uh, asset allocation program it doesn't run based on my feelings, and thank God, because my gut is not great. Um, it, you know, in in at turning points, right? So even if I feel a certain way, the rules that we've set up in advance are designed to protect my clients from every time I have a hunch. That's number one, and thank God for that. But number two, more importantly, I'm also like very stubborn, and I refuse to believe that investing uh, today is not going to pay off tomorrow. Even if it sucks for the next two or three years, you can't talk me out of that concept. So I probably always will err on the side of doing less versus doing more, not reacting. And if anything, my reaction is like, holy shit, if the market's down 10%, I got to figure out a way that I can buy more. My reaction is not, 
oh no, it's down 10%. What if it goes down 20? I just don't give a shit. And, and you know, you're, and I think your point though is also a differentiated one between like single stock investing, like in, in the sort of sure, stuff that of you're doing on, you know, on, on the halftime report or something like that. And, and, and I want to get to this, Josh, because you wrote like, I think a brilliant post yesterday about Uber. And I have not seen that on your blog in a very long time. It was a kind of like deep dive. It was on a single stock, but it was more thematic and you were working some other stuff in there. And I want to get to that, but then let's talk about the inflection point because our friend Doug Cass over there at Seabreeze, he wrote something about the equity risk premium last week, okay? And it was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday also. And it's not a topic that we've heard in a while talked about here. Talk to me, Batnick. How are you thinking about this? The S&P 500 earnings yield, okay, versus, okay, let's just say the risk-free rate here a little bit. Is this one of, is this something that works into some of your models here? All right, hold on. First of all, I'll answer your question in a second. I just want to point out Uber's down 5% right now off of the back of great, great, great earnings. So the stock's up a gazillion percent this More year. More evidence that maybe yeah. we've gone too so far. So we're a little, bit, a, little, a little bit exhausted, which is, again, totally fine. But that's a good point. There's a big difference between trading single stocks for me for entertainment. Obviously, I, I want to make money versus like my long-term 401k. There's nothing in the world that would stop me from doing that every two weeks, even if I got – uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Grantham bearish. Like I would never, cause I would take advantage of that. Right. Oh, and I didn't bring that up and I didn't even see where it was. I, I brought that up because I haven't seen you write a thousand words on a thesis and you were basically part it of like it was three, like, it was like 3000. You were words. saying in two to, in, in two, I only got you to a thousand. I know, but, in, but, but, but the point was in two to three years, this stock could double after it's already doubled. So this wasn't a call in the quarter or anything no, like I know, that. I know. But yeah, yeah. I want to be right. really clear. So anyway, equity risk premium. Yeah. So what Dan's talking about is the earnings yield versus the yield on either the ten-year bond or or or, or tips like the real, because uh, stocks are a real asset, and it's quite low, right? Meaning that stocks relative to bonds, but of course this matters over long periods of time, uh, and I think it's actually a great thing, right? The fact that we could actually get income from our fixed income is a beautiful thing. It's been a long, long, long time, and so I don't dunk on people that that took advantage of that early on in the year and then missed the first best half of the year ever, by the way, for the NASDAQ 100. Did you guys know that? Through July, it's up 44% best ever. I don't uh, besmirch or dunk. I think that was reasonable then, and I think it's reasonable now. It's great. So what I would say is now you can get, if you were like 70, 30, maybe out over your skis, taking a little bit more risk as you needed to, well, great. Now you could dial it back. I think it's wonderful. And yes, I probably would lower my return expectations for the S&P 500 going forward, not just because of where the earnings yield is, but just look at where we've come from. What have stocks do the last 11 years, up 15% a year? Like that can't continue. So also what is the, what is the money for that we're talking about and when are you using it? So somebody walking around in January saying at that time I can get 4% on T-bills. Why would I take the risk of the stock market? That was very rational take then. If that person was planning to use the money a year from now on a daughter's wedding or a college tuition or a second home, it's still rational. It doesn't matter that the NASDAQ went up 40% in your face. You weren't investing with the time horizon or the need to earn 40% on it. So that, like, that's the part that gets lost is that we're not just all investing one giant pool of money that's amorphous and not earmarked for certain things. Like the financial planning profession, we have 20 financial planners working for us. This is what they do. They look at a client's portfolio, not just in totality, but in pieces. So it never makes sense to ignore, you know, a yield that's 4%, 5%, now 6%. It never makes sense to look at that and say, 
I don't need that. I have the Nasdaq. And guess what? If we're just looking at <laughs> if we're just looking at the S and P to, to compare the equity versus premium, well, that's thirty percent or whatever it is. These incredible, amazing companies that should be expensive relative to the rest of the market. Look at what Apple and Microsoft and Google, look at their growth rates. And then you strip that out and compare it to the market. They should trade at a premium. So if you don't like disaggregate that and you just lump it in and say the S&P is expensive, you're doing yourself a giant right. disservice. Now the question is what premium? So I know Michael probably knows this off the top of your head. Josh probably knows this if you were to think a little bit, but how many $150 billion companies are in the world right now? Probably somewhere between 65 and 80. Is and that mostly here. Mostly here. But I only mention that because a couple of weeks ago you saw Microsoft add $150 billion in, in market cap in a day. Does that con is that concerning or is that just the way the world well, is right now? Well, that got undone two it days did. later it did, by just, the news of the NASDAQ we balanced. Right. So let's just talk about that. I mean, again, you know, when you see moves like this over the course of hours, is that concerning yeah, seem, or is that they, just anomaly? No, they seem toppy as fuck and they seem like they're toward the end of something, not the beginning. I totally agree. But I guess the context is if the S and let's just say the S and P, uh, let's say that this is the high point for the year, which I'm making. I'm not saying that it is, but let's just say it is. Okay, so the S and P is up, finishes up the year what 16 percent? We go sideways for the next five months. Is is that bad for anybody? But but here's the thing that I think is interesting because what you guys were talking about the quality of the rally and where we are is like if you look at the S and P was down you know 20 some percent last year, right? And what we know and you guys know this too is that um, investors make lots of individual mistakes, uh, single stock mistakes. They, they reallocate things at highs or relative highs, and we don't know that they're highs, but you can tell that we're in a period where it feels a bit frothy, right? And then they make really bad decision at relative lows. And, and we could just look at like last fall where people are puking out, let's say they can't take it anymore. Meta's down 80% from its all-time highs, you know, 12, 14 months ago, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's really hard to make that stuff up. And so I guess when I think about the push and pull between what you guys do and how you think about this for clients and, and diversification, that sort of thing, and then what we also do a lot of is the single stock stuff that is more gut based, right? And it's more, you know, like animal spirits to use your fine podcast name, that guy. Mm -hmm. Why can't you use that expression? There's certain spirits. things I don't say, like I don't say. And he doesn't uh, like to say that, but he would say a very fine podcast. I you know said it I mean? yesterday. Yes, you did say yeah, it. But there's certain things mistakes? I say, like I don't yeah. say hump day. No. How was your turkey day? Yeah, those are hump not. Day. I don't hump talk day. about oh, Wednesday. Um, Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Why yeah. do you want him to say But, but how do you guys, yeah. how do you guys. Under any circumstances. No, I don't want him to say hump day. Dan, you know what's great? We've got, we've got data a lot of data some of it is dated meaning i don't really care what happened in 19 you know 19 but what we do know empirically is that people get scared of a bull market like oh things are overbought maybe i'm going to like take profits you know seek shelter markets like an overwhelming demand for stocks is not a bad thing even though it might make you feel uncomfortable things are frothy we've got it correct maybe we do maybe we don't but crashes like real not four to six crashes don't happen in good markets they happen in bad markets Right? Yeah. I know it sounds they, obvious. But they, they do start at the top. No, but they, but they actually do. No, they I mean, don't. No, they what really are you talking don't. about? No. Crashes don't start from highs? No, no. there's. If, if you are few. a tactical type of trader. In what, in, what, in what time period, though? Because the, like, big crashes, the big crashes have all started in corrections. So, like, when, you, when really bad shit happens, and I'll do something very simple, the market is generally below its 200 day moving average. That's where monsters lurk. When you're above the 200, it doesn't mean that you know, it's, it's all bright green, blue skies ahead. Like, yeah, we could correct. But you don't get like a uh, down 17% month or down 8% week 
at 52-week highs. It's very, very oh, right. rare. Okay, but that, this is a – I mean, but what I'm just saying is, is like, you know, if you guys – and I don't know if you guys were in the markets in in, in January of 2000. I mean, it I really was. felt really toppy, and, and therefore we had this one last push in the NASDAQ, and people were, like, disgusted by what's going on. And my point is, is that, yeah, the NASDAQ and the S&P over the next, call it, two years sold off, you know, 50% and 80%, you know what I mean, like from their – their highs. To me, that was the crash. I mean, the crash was this slow moving train wreck that went on for two years. Same thing in November of 2007 to the lows in March of 2009. I mean, that was the crash just because we didn't go no, 87 no, stuff. No, but no, it wasn't. But no, it wasn't. The top was November of 2007. The top was March of 2000. The real crash was later once those highs the crescendo be, of the crash but the, so what here's here's what happens the market tops you don't know it's the top of the time it falls a little bit it comes back but fails to come back to the old high falls a little bit more it comes back fa- that's a that's why tops look like they're rounded tops don't look like a knife's edge yeah tops are a process tops are, tops are a process so actually what it really looks like is a succession of failed rallies that do get you back up just not back up to the previous peaks. And that can't happen more than three, four, maybe five times before fear sets in. Oh, no, I may never see that old high again. That is the conditions under which a real crash, like condensed period of time, huge drop, usually coinciding with some blowups, that kind of thing. A, it's very rare. It does happen, but it's rare. And B, it almost never happens from an all-time It high. happened in March 2000, and it happened in, in 1929. It did. But Josh, to Josh's point, this buy-the-dip mentality where you keep being rewarded for putting more money to work, that doesn't turn on a dime. That has to be unwound, much as it was in well, 2021. Nasdaq took 15 this years to mistake. get back to this those Back, to your, original, yes. Yes. back yeah. to your original point. This is the mistake that investors make. It's, it's the number, I think it's the number one mistake, and it's actually the easiest. It's the easiest to talk about, the hardest to actually correct someone for making. Recency bias. The number one thing that investors do is reach for the solution to whatever just hurt them. And this makes sense biologically. If a fly is buzzing around your head all day, of course, you want to fly, you want to swat the fly. If you put your hand on a hot stove and burn yourself, of course, you're never putting your hand. So the recency bias is why everyone fights the last battle. And this is not just what happened last week. People fight the last battle from two or three years ago. There were still people worrying about an 08-style financial crisis up until 2018. Like, it it almost never went away. That's why last year, toward the end of the year, you had the worst year for bonds, the worst year for stocks simultaneously, maybe ever. That's why the 60-40 portfolio is dead articles started coming out December and January. And that's why every know-it-all in wealth management started overloading on alternatives. Anything but stocks and bonds. Fast forward, we're six months through this year, bonds look great, stocks look even better. So that is the biggest mistake. And the reason why it's the hardest to correct is because it always makes sense to worry about the thing that just happened. Now we do it to the upside too. So anybody that was involved with NVIDIA, what's the next thing they want to do? Another AI stock. So we do it on both on both sides of the on both sides of the, the the market, bull market and bear market. That is the number one enemy for all investors. I don't care if you're retail professional, and I don't really know what to do about it other than read history and remind yourself. And rem- I know, but still, 
and remind yourself whatever's coming next probably is not going to look like what just happened. And if you can do that successfully, you, you will probably avoid a lot of the errors that most people are making, but you can't avoid them all. All right, quick reminder, our water bottle giveaway. All you have to do is leave a review of On The Tape Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Email a screenshot of it to contact at riskreversal.com along with an address for us to send the bottle to you. That's contact at riskreversal.com. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Last time we talked, we talked about your client base and how not only are your clients interviewing you, but you guys are interviewing your clients, which makes the conversations, I would imagine, easier. But with that said, there's still difficult conversations. How did you miss X or why aren't we in this type of thing? Are those conversations happening? Or are you still people just very happy about I'll just about say setting expectations in advance is the only way to minimize the potential for that kind of stuff, but you can't avoid it completely. You have, you have clients who are investing with you and then seeing stories about their next door neighbor who bought all this Ethereum and, you know, so you, you can't, you can't completely eliminate it. It's not realistic. It's human nature to want what you don't have to wish you got in on, you know, something. Um, but the balance of that is look at all the trauma that ends up happening and all the stuff that you weren't in, thank God. And I think that's the, the realistic way to approach the business. Uh, but so what's the most difficult day-to-day -day thing you guys deal with? It's, is, it's obviously not those conversations. No, it's is hiring. It, well, yeah, it's, say, my, that's my, it, hiring. My hiring. clients that's are the it. advisors. So I'm not an advisor. I don't, I'm not talking to end clients. I mean, I do here and there. But let me toot our horn for a second. So I think, I think our advisors do a really good job making sure that they're bringing on fits. Now, it's very rare that somebody says, hey, do you guys do rules-based asset allocation? Uh, with the tactical overlay and financial planning. Do you guys do that? Like, that's never happened before, right? So we do have to make sure, you know, we do have to sell them that this is the right solution and all that sort of stuff. But what we do a really good job of, Josh and I and the team, is making sure that we bring on the right advisors. So we want the advisors and the clients to be a good match. We want the advisors and our, and our firm to be a good match. So we're not bringing in people 
that are going to have to have difficult conversations with us repeatedly about our, put it this way, my advisors are not asking me questions about, hey, sh I'm worried about the market. Like, I don't have those conversations. So you mentioned hiring. I mean, so that's – that was the first thing that came – the hardest. it's the hardest thing part of our – Is we, it finding people, paying people, pro all of those all things? Of all well, of it. I think we're I think we're like one of the fastest growing firms in America. We've been for a long time. No matter how many people we hire, it's not enough for the amount of um, households that we're serving. And because the stupidest thing on earth you could do is go through all the trouble to onboard a great family, right. like meet these clients – their potential clients, we spend three, four meetings walking them through what we do before they come on board. It's very labor and time and energy intensive upfront. It's front end loaded. You get through that whole process. You really get to know somebody, what they're afraid of, what they want, what the variables are, what the things we have to watch out for. You do all that work, the financial planners, my tax team, you do all that shit, right? You bring them on board and then they don't have a good customer experience because you haven't adequately supplied trading staff to get cashiering requests done quickly. You don't have a client service associate to take their calls, respond to their emails, and you lose the client over that. It's insane. So let me so ask you. we can't you afford to not hire. The problem is I ain't hiring anyone. These are not just clients. They're fans. I need superstars at every role and – that is really hard All right, to do. All right, so here you go. So, and I don't want to do, I walked uphill both ways to school, but but I was at Goldman Sachs from 96 to 03. I think when I started there, there were 6,000 people in the firm. Fast forward today, I think they're north of 40,000 yeah. people at the firm. So my question to you is, Goldman built themselves on culture. I would submit it's almost impossible to maintain that culture with that type of growth rate. Yes. You have a culture, but you're talking about hiring people how do you maintain the culture? Both of you guys can answer that. All right. So my quick answer is the number one ambassadors from, from us out to the world of clients and potential clients are the certified financial planners. Pretty much every single one of them who works at the firm joined because of the culture. They were already acolytes of what we're doing. We were not on LinkedIn trying to recruit advisors. We're not out there acquiring firms using private equity money. The people who work with us said – I read your stuff every day. I listen to your stuff. I love Barry. I love Michael. I love Blair. I read Ben. I like Josh. He's all right. But that's who works for us. So the, they're already part of the culture right. before they come. They're not part of the culture where they work now. They have to get the fuck out of there. And they're like, I would never leave this firm only for the chance to come work with you guys. And that means so much to me personally. And that's how we keep the culture. Michael, how are people finding you? Because this is really interesting. We'll talk a little bit about Twitter slash X. I mean, we all kind of met each other on social media going back, you know, 10 plus years. And then Mike, and you were on TV and you I were met on him TV on the set of Fast 50s. Money. Um, you know, that's, a, yeah, no, but, but, but what I'm saying did, is how true. we found so many people. And I know your story and we talked about it last time. So I don't know about you guys. And this is really funny. Like yesterday, I literally just subscribed to your blogs again. You know why? I used to see all your posts on social. I'm mm. not on Twitter anymore. Okay. Okay. And so it's an interesting, there, there seems to be a bit of a, a crossroads here for a lot of us. You got off Twitter years ago. Um, and Way so, ahead of my time. so how are people finding us? So how are people, cause I, you know, I saw your, your, your post on, on the yield curve. You know, I used to see that on Twitter and now 
Yeah, how are people finding you? And and again, you guys are fairly prolific when you think about what you write, um, how you, you move it around on the web, um, you know, obviously the audio and stuff like that. So is, yeah. has something changed for you guys in the last year or so? So I will answer your question. I'm not trying to dodge. I just want to add one more thing to, yeah. to our culture thing because, guys, it's such a good point. Goldman spent 70 years or whatever it was building that, and it go, when it goes, it goes, and it goes and quickly. And you can't get it back. And so we have an internal mantra that's not lip service. We really stick to this. If it's not an obvious yes, it's a no from the advisors because unwinding that relationship is traumatic for them, for their family, for their clients. And so we put these people through the ringer and the proof is in the pudding because I think we've hired 24 advisors. We've never, and let, we've never let an advisor go or had an advisor leave and us. And an advisor has never left. And so we make sure that they're the right fit philosophically, culturally, personality wise. I never want to lose the trust of my advisors. When we bring somebody in and we say they're good we have that trust. They know they're good, but that's very fragile. It's ephemeral and it could go very quickly. And so we're, we're going to do our best to make sure that happens. How do people find us? Um, so I am tweeting much less. I'm only just blasting out links these days, but uh, it's, it's a podcast on YouTube and TV. Yeah. Well, we have subscribers. Keep in mind, Barry started his blog, Barry started his blog probably 0304, the big picture. It was on TypePad, if you remember that uh, platform. They weren't even calling it blog yet, right? Uh, so he's got subscribers, a subscriber list that's been built for 20 years. Um, I'm blogging 15 years now, 2008. Uh, Tadis works with us. 05, he started his site. Michael's site, Ben's site. These are some of the earliest and highest quality financial media products that exist. And I don't write as much anymore. But my following is still there. Well, a, lot, a lot of people disappeared. You know, I mean, there's no payoff. And if there is a payoff, it's it's a long. Well, it's you a guys long used game. to be funny. I mean, like at first, like, like no, the two of you guys, you're not you, funny you know, anymore. They were funny on Twitter. I mean, you guys well, were kind of making a joke is, out of a Twitter, lot of stuff. Is Twitter a fun place to be? No, funny? Dan, no, Dan. Building an audience is incredibly exciting and exhilarating, and you get the the adrenaline and the dopamine. And then once you've built that audience, and some, even if it's a very very small percentage of the audience turns on you. It's tough, right, to just take those barbs. I mean, you guys get it. Like, eventually, you're like, all right, I don't know. The who worst needs thing this? you could I'm do out. is be successful, um, and having started with alongside other people who weren't. That's like the absolute. And people, okay. people it, want the underdog to win until they win. Until they win, it's okay. It happens. You know, it happens all the time. It happens in every. So walk why of did life, you try? But, you tried threads, and you were funny. It, I honestly, I felt like it was uh, Josh Brown. You know, circa I want to say 2015 on Twitter for like a week, and then I stopped using threads. Compl and I don't compliance. See it. They don't have a solution yet that can adequately archive what I post there because their API is not open. So if I post something to Threads, uh, somebody that works for me has to like print it out and put it in a folder. It's it's just like too much work. It's not worth it. Um, I'm told there will be an API or some sort of solution coming from one of our compliance software companies and maybe I'll go back. But yeah, I mean, it's when you could be fun, when you can have fun somewhere. So my, my brand is not, I don't talk shit about other people. I don't care what anyone else is doing. I'm not looking to go on social media to make someone else's day worse. I like to make people laugh and I think I'm pretty good at it. There are environments where it's conducive to that. 
I don't think Twitter has been that for a long time. Well, you said Way that before to me Elon. two years ago. I said that to you five years no, ago. I, well, you did, you, you did say it a long time ago, but two years ago, I remember going in on your pod and you're just saying like, listen, Instagram is a place where people go for this and that is more conducive yeah. to what I want to be doing. And you were just done with Twitter. I mean, guy, you know, you, you as a guy who literally like to, to spend a lot of time and engage with a lot of people, even your, your usage, your engagement must be down like dramatically, like 90%. We used to sit on the set of Fast Money tweeting back at people and they loved that it was sort fun, of stuff. It, it was fun. fun. And it, it's, it was fun. it's just over. I'll explain what happened. Yeah. There was a wave of new users that came along. Um, probably, it was a quote tweet. Probably 20. That's what ruined Twitter, honestly. 2018, 2019. All of a sudden, all these pseudonymous people with the word capital in their handle, they're basically like frustrated analysts at asset management firms or hedge funds. They think they're smarter than the PM. They Maybe they are. It's like this endless frustration, and FinTwit is where they can go and be a superstar, and they can vent, and they could take out that frustration about their own career on other people. Especially as people that are perceived as successful on Twitter yeah. who have large followings. And you know what? I, I guess what? They're definitely smarter than us, especially Josh. And I was, and I was that. I was that person. I was sardonic, sarcastic. I thought everyone. I thought everyone who was doing well, there was some trick or so. I was that guy, like in my own head. So I didn't act on it, but because um, I was always tweeting under my own name. I never had a fake name. Um, but I get it. I understand that impulse. And you know what? You shouldn't go back. Like you shouldn't You shouldn't advance to a new level and then worry about what are the people that are still at the old level think. That's like who would, who would do that? It makes no sense. So I, I just think like there will be new platforms in the future where it will start over. It will be fun. People will come back that haven't said a lot publicly. Maybe it's threads. Maybe it's, it's something threads else. Threads too similar to Twitter to actually be the new new thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like because I, I wonder. It, it feels like you're just on some. You know, finance like, people need a chronological timeline, and if you don't give them that, they're not going to use that to express their market thoughts because nothing is dumber than somebody thought something at 9 a.m. and it's 4 p.m. and there was a complete shift in price, and it's like someone someone else is going to see that thread post. Two days later, what you know? What is the point of that? So I want to talk about your industry real quick because it's changing clearly, and you're at the forefront. How many advise? I heard a number like three hundred fifty thousand advisors in the United States. Is that ish? No, it's that they're accounting insurance brokers. And All right, a lot so of people that so are not throw advisors. a number at me. What's the proper number? How many advisors there? Thirty thousand. Eighteen thousand firms. Almost all of them. Almost all of them are barbershops. Fair enough. So let's let me ask you this question. Given what, given demographics, the age, the the aging out of a lot of these advisors. Yeah, that's the most it? bullish. Right, but what the is guy, they don't industry? age out. What does it look? They don't, well, they they don't, don't, they age don't out. leave. They just get worse at their job. Yeah. Uh, but they keep collecting the the fake. Certain, listen, I'll say this: at a certain point, people do pass away, and it, so I, my question is, what does the industry look like five years from now? Because you're you're working towards that's what you're working towards. So I'm going to tell you some secrets here. Number one. You know how they say like the actuarial tables and they say like the life expectancy for, um, you know, a female is 77 and a male is 76 or whatever they say. If you just do that with people that are in the top 1%, which most financial advisors are, um, those numbers go way higher. These people are living to like 93, okay? And they never leave and they tell the kid that works for them they're going to leave one day. 
because that's what the kid has to do. The kid has to hear that so he could tell his wife. Oh, the kid is my. The kid is forty. The kid and is. So I'm having these conversations. Their senior partner who promised them equity promised they're, they're not leaving. The senior partner is sixty eight and is gonna is gonna never never really leave unless some private equity firm comes in with a huge check, and even then they'll stay on and transition the clients. So they're never leaving. It's a fantasy. That's number one. Number two, that's what the 40-year-old advisor needs to hear so he could keep telling his wife someday, 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 and not be an entrepreneur or find a better situation. But those people you, are getting wise to that. How do you guys that? solve for that? Because that's- Well, they're leaving. Some, they are they're leaving. They're leaving. We're hiring the yeah, best- we're hiring them. We're hiring the best Gen Y and Gen X advisors in America. So the ones that understand that they're just being sold a bill of goods, yes. the ones that have the culture already before even getting to the place- Who's called? They're, they're the ones that you're matter finding. of fact. Last time we were on this podcast, one of those one of those people reached out to me and said, "I heard you and Josh with Guy and Dan. You guys are my guys, and I've been basically sold a bill of goods." So what type of finders fees do we get? Hey, so l- l- well, listen, this is important. We just did this in Wisconsin. We just did this in Austin. We just did this in Los Angeles. All this year, three rock star advisors. They're part. Of, they're part of the team now. So geographic is really important to you guys. No, no, no. We're not really. Agnostic. We want the people. We want the no, no, but people. you guys have done that. I, I like watched over the years. You guys have hired small teams in San Diego, and like, like we don't you, care where they yeah, are. It's matter. the people. By the way, yeah. the guy did not uh, end up joining us. So thanks for that. <laughs> so no, but I think- had nothing to do. You looked at me when you said that. I had Wait, nothing can, to do can with we, it. Can we? All right, Josh. Anything else? Because I want to talk about one more thing. Go ahead. So I just want to make this distinction because we spoke earlier about the market frothy, getting cautious. The market has earned its frothiness. Because the fundamentals are kicking ass. Companies are beating. Did you write this down? Because you're rushing it a little bit. It's hot, though. That's hot. Josh, what am I looking at? Is this going to be kidding around? Is this going to be the social media? I got a chart on. I got a chart on it. I'm looking at I'm looking at IWM. It's going to be heavy. No, no. no. So companies are beating and they're raising, and there's no incentive for management to forecast good news in the future quarters because then they have to actually go ahead and do it. And so com- the economy's good. Companies are on fire. I feel like everything is a, it's a double beat and a raise. I feel like it's just it, – uh, and not just anecdotally. I saw a stat yesterday that the number of companies beating is a little bit higher. What, what, it's like 73% normally. I it's 68, whatever it is. like 77 Perfect. But the yeah. magnitude of the beats. They're I, beating by like 560 basis points if, on – If I said to you, if I said to you in December when everyone was bearish, myself included. Myself included. Everyone. Um, it, was, up. it was rational to be bearish, by the way. If I said to you, this is what we're going to be talking about in July. Earnings estimates are now going higher, not lower, right? Some of the key companies that make up the largest index weights are f- blowing it out. Caterpillar. Okay, hold on. So, so you have that. Home prices, I know you thought they'd be falling. Actually, now they're ex- rising again, four straight months of rising home prices. Um Wealthy people with huge cash balances are now earning five or six percent on that cash. It's making them feel even wealthier and spend accordingly. Like if I lined these things up for you, and then I said, "What should the market be doing in that environment?" You'd say, "Well, that sounds pretty." Oh, by the way, labor costs are are slowing down. Cost of all the cost of everything is is going down, right? Like if I gave you all of that stuff. You would oh, and oil hasn't spiked to two hundred. Like all the things that we were worried about, hyperinflation. So if I gave you that, you'd probably say, yeah, S and P should be up 20 percent. That's where we are. And AI, by the way, like the Nvidia guide from seven to eleven billion. Like 
Yeah, but if they don't do that again, oh, I agree, I agree, it's I agree. fucking lights yeah, out. Agree. Hey, but let, let, let's just say this. So from an earnings perspective, so so you talk about those beats. What we had towards the end of last year, we had estimates for 2023 come down. So right now we're looking at maybe a flat S&P, you know, year over year. This is what frustrates you know, the bears, right, though. No, that, that's All right. that matters is they're going but, back But up. you know what's you know what's really interesting? There was an article in Bloomberg yesterday talking about hedge funds degrossing. Okay, like so basically taking their shorts down and taking their longs down for a whole host of reasons, right? And so I guess the, the, the one thing that I would say what I think – that a lot of the bears, me included, in late last year, were not anticipating maybe just the excitement um, around the IRA, the CHIPS Act, all this sort of stuff from a fiscal stimulus standpoint, right? And then right around the time that we were talking last, we also had this regional banking crisis where liquidity came back into the market. Where did it go? Into some of these biggest names, stop right? Q, right. QE right. theory. Yeah. And so we're not, well, it's not really a theory. It's just like we, we the, the balance sheet of the Fed came down from $9 trillion to 8.4, and then we put a few hundred billion in monetary, and then we also had the backdrop of the fiscal, right? And then a lot of these inflationary inputs came down pretty dramatically. But one of the things that I think could change the tenor of the market would be if we don't see, if we just hit peak margins, okay, at a time where input costs are coming in, that might be the thing because a lot of companies were able to pass through higher costs, right, to That's consumers and enterprise. But isn't that bullish? Like the costs are going to come down, the prices are not. It is bullish. Margins I mean, could expand paradoxically. So here's the thing that, like, going back to late uh, 2018, you know, listen, we have these sort of mini crashes, if you will, because the S and P did drop 20 percent in two and a half months in late. You know, and it happened when people least expected it, and it happened at a time where people were like relying on China as this engine of growth, and it slowed down. Right. So all of this stuff could happen again. I'm totally. not saying that you have to reorient your entire investment. Well, then here thesis, we are right, right now, and, and on August 1st, this is a complete 180 of what it looked like on January 1st, where everybody was. Bad. Everybody here now we have. I just saw this in Bloomberg. Net call volume jumps to the highest level since late 2021, and the cost of buying a put has fallen to the lowest level on record. Okay, so everybody is bullish because uh, of the recency bias. So yeah, things are things have can changed say, a lot. Can I say one closing thing though that I think is like the biggest thing? This is what I think is the biggest thing. Um, this could be a book. I'm not going to write it. The, the traditional financial media in which we all play a pretty outsized role, right? So whether you're talking about the Wall Street Journal or Barron's or CNBC or Bloomberg TV, the, the, the firmament, um, it's geared towards serving news to boomers. Not on purpose. The boomer audience was in their 40s when all this stuff started. And like they grew up with – right. this is what they grew up with. So – and the media loves them and they love the media and that is – that relationship is like a nice relationship. And so because it's catering predominantly to people who are in their 60s, 70s, and now early 80s, a market falling down is bad. A market rising is good. This is an audience that all of the money they're ever going to have, they've already made. They can't replace it. They're not going to go back and get another job. So to them, rightfully so, a falling market is a negative thing. I speak to that audience. I'm really good at speaking to that audience. I love that audience. But I also speak to uh, the millennial audience of which I am a part. I'm either the oldest millennial or the youngest Xer, depending on who you know who's, who's dividing the line. It's 73 million millennials and 69 million Gen Xers right now in the workforce, in their peak earnings years or headed that way, forming families, putting money into 401ks. Explain to me how a flash crash, a, a stock market down 20% for any fucking thing. reason. I get, it. I get it. Explain how that's bad. 
If you are 30, 35, 50, 55, 60 even, if you are a forced saver and you have to invest every year into your IRA, into your 401k, how is down 20% bad? Unless you tell me you just got your last paycheck and that's it and you will never make any money again and everything you have is fully invested in stocks, it's not bad. It's good. It's great. You actually should be rooting for it. Why at 30 years old do you want to take your parents or your grandparents out of their stocks at all-time highs? Why do you want up? No, we talk about that actually. We say exactly we say it differently, but we're saying the same thing. This, but this is the number one thing that the the the, the traditional financial me- media they they want to talk to the younger generations, but it's a different language and they don't know how to cheer for buying opportunities because they're also still talking to the OG audience of people in their 60s and 70s and it would be really off-putting if somebody that's 75 years old turned on CNBC in the middle of a 10% correction and some asshole like me were like, this is awesome. Everything. But that's how I feel inside. I can't express that because it's inappropriate. Well, you, you, what you've said is what we've said for a while, that we've conditioned an audience to think that these adjectives, the market's up, it must be good. That's right. The market's down. It must be bad. That's right. That's and I've said this for years. And it's years. not intentional. It's just how it's it, intentional. It's just well, how we missed out a little bit on, on the nuance of this, Michael. You le- suffer less of this because you're not. You don't have to show up three, four days a week and 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 put on a show. And I'm not saying we're putting on a show. I mean, like we are all being very sincere and we get nuance. We've been in the business a long time, and a lot of people who are turning on the TV, they do want to be a little bit entertained, but they just got out of the dentist chair, or they're a lawyer, or they're an engineer, or they're a teacher, or something like that, and they're there just to get a few pearls of wisdom from people that they enjoy watching and they trust and that sort of thing. And that's one of the reasons I think all of us enjoy this medium because we get to have these conversations and your 3,000 words on Uber, which wasn't just about Uber. It was really a masterclass in how to it's think about, about life big trains. About no, I know. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> a very special edition episode. Right, before of these the guys t- get No, but it was great. Here. I mean, like, so, you know, listen, again, I just want to kind of reiterate our listeners who are not following Josh at the Reform Broker or Michael at the irrelevant investor. These are two great blogs that thank, are not that are, that are not you. suffering from some of the things that we just went into about it. But. Michael Batnick's a Nick fan. You are as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Give me your starting five. I want a starting your all time Nick starting oh, all, five. So like, all-time in, wait, like for Nick. my position, my Nick. lifetime. Yeah, you're putting together a team. All right. Are you Ewing? Patrick's at the center. Uh, Please continue. Uh, Oakley, a power forward. Wow, I like what you did there. I, mean, I hate. I, I'm not. A, I don't hate. I'm not a mellow guy. But how could you put anybody else? Um, no, mellow is not on my team. I, I, I want Latrell though. I didn't watch Bernard King. What about Strickland as your point guard? He was not on the Knicks for that long. Mark Jackson. No, no, Jalen Brunson. Okay, Jaylen, oh, Jalen. So Jalen Brunson and Allen Houston at the time. So let me tell you something about Oakley. I was at uh, you know our friend. You, uh, you guys know Brent Montgomery Wheelhouse. Okay, he had Oakley. He was making fried chicken. He's like a chef now or something like that. And okay. it, was, it was absolutely amazing. So we got to figure out how to get Oak. To make us where does he fun. where does he make he, fried chicken? Well, he he's got is a restaurant. Yeah, well, I, he's he's doing like some catering stuff and everything. Oh, he, he was I, I want I'm gonna hook this up. I'm gonna get Brent and and, and Starks was there and uh, like you guys would have been in heaven. So Starks I know, is my, maybe my sixth man. You've never you've team, just because you, you've never turned down not a piece particularly of, talented, but probably the most. Think about the career of Think about the career of John. The guy was bagging groceries, and he's he's become a beloved ex Nick. I mean, think about that four or five year period of time. Back out that game seven in Houston, which was a fucking disaster. 
I mean, Starks was the man. Yeah. That dunk over Jordan, that's po- like posterized Jordan. Almost nobody else has ever no. done that. Ever. No. So, right, so, the so we, 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 we started on the way, inverted yield there, curves. There was a playoff game where they did, they honored the 1973 team. It was the anniversary yeah. uh, this past season. Yeah, I saw it. And they had a, but then they had a whole ton of like ex Knicks, not from that team, but just period. The ovation for Starks was, too, listen to me now, 2x louder yeah. for any other person on the court. And they were all there. There's something about that, like grit, that determination. He's New York. That I I see myself more in Starks than than uh, Jalen Brunson is a freak. He's one of the best players that, that's ever been on the team. I don't see any of me in that. I see me in somebody like maybe Oakley, but definitely Starks. I, I see, see a lot of myself in Kurt Thomas. I'm a more of a Jerry Lucas guy. <laughs> a Jeremy Lin guy. All right, listen. On that note, guys, I see a lot of I see a, I see a lot of uh, Van Gundy in you. I have to say, see, look I at see, how you've coached what, us I, to a successful I, I, podcast. I, I see what you've done. All right, well gentlemen. done, gentlemen. Listen, let's do this again. Let's do it every quarter. Love to come down here. Thank you. To we love Michael you guys. Batnick we'll come anytime you invite us. This was a lot of fun, guys. Absolutely. Dami, we missed Danny Moses. He'll be back next week. We don't have room for him though. Yeah, Actually, right here, you can put somebody there. It's a fancy. Danny would Danny would be listening to our bullish whatever. Just like his eyes would be rolling his eyes. <laughs> well, he'll be here next time. All right, guys, thanks Danny. so much for being here. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.